the most comfortable thing, not the most enjoyable, but I am so grateful for your willingness to work together and cooperate with this difficult season we're in and continue to be in and how Advent so reflects that for us. A season of darkness, season of waiting, season of longing for the coming of the Lord. Advent is a it's a vocative season of the church. In other words, it's a season of the church calling out to God, come, come Lord Jesus, as Philip has even been leading us in these carols. We acknowledge that the human soul, your soul and mine, can only be healed from outside itself by being loved and being held by God. Our prayers, our songs, our carols, our anthems of Advent call out on God and invoke Him to come. Would you say that? Come. Come, Lord Jesus, and save us from ourselves. Save us from our propensity to injure the world and injure each other. You can hear this longing for wholeness. This yearning to be made complete. And one of the ways in the history of the church that this has been expressed in ancient times was known as the O Antiphons. O Come. Antiphons were responsive phrases that were sung by the church. And their ancient poetical and invocational prayers that are sung to God. And they originate in the earliest centuries of the church. They each begin with this exclamation, Oh! Say it together with me, will you? Oh! This is why they're called the O Antiphons. They cry out to our Creator, praying that we might finally be seen and see ourselves for who we really are. Full of shadow. Full of light. This recognition is known as judgment. And while it is something we don't like to think about, Judgment is ultimately a liberating theme of the Advent season. At the same time, we ask that we be embraced with a mercy that will lead us into a fresh and hopeful future. So judgment and mercy. And in Advent, we carry these intention together. Judgment and mercy. Lord, embrace us with your mercy. Lead us into a fresh and hopeful future. This is the cry of the Advent season, and isn't it a fitting cry for us in these days that we have been in? So, Advent is therefore a time of attentiveness and patience, watching and waiting as we try to tune our hearts to the harmonies of heaven, alert to God's presence among us. For the Christ follower, all things are as yet unfinished, and Advent serves to reflect faith's growing anticipation both of the first coming of Christ as we move towards the celebration of Christmas and of 
the day when the prayer that we pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, the day when that prayer will be fully and finally answered. And for the Christ follower, Advent serves as a season for us to be in watchful anticipation of God's coming into our everyday ordinariness. Our everyday ordinary lives. So, beloved, the season of Advent calls us to prepare ourselves both for the celebration of Christ's nativity yet to come, and also for the day when He shall come to judge the hearts of us all. So with penitent hearts, during this season of Advent, we want to confess our failures, our shortcomings, receive His embrace of mercy toward us, and joyfully renew in ourselves the vision of God's perfect kingdom yet to come, which is the end of all our strivings and the consummation of God's loving purposes for us being fulfilled. So these O antiphons, each one of them, welcomes the advent of the Savior by heralding one of His majestic, prophetic, biblical names as foreshadowed by the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And they also make petition related to each of those titles. You might recognize some of these antiphons from the beautiful Advent hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. The first one, and I wanted to have... Do we have them? Good. Thank you. Say them together with me, will you? Will you express them together with me? I have each of them on the screen for us. And note that each of them call on God by a specific prophetic name that has been given to us, particularly by the prophet Isaiah. Say these together with me. Lift your voices. O wisdom, O holy word of God, you govern all creation with your strong tender care. Come and show your people the way to salvation. O sacred Lord of ancient Israel, who showed Yourself to Moses in the burning bush, who gave him the holy law on Sinai mountain, come, stretch out Your mighty hand and set us free. O root of Jesse, you have been raised up as a sign for all peoples. Kings stand silent in your presence. The nations bow down in worship before you. Come, let nothing keep you from coming to our aid. O key of David, O royal power of Israel, Controlling at Your will the gate of heaven. Come, break down the prison walls of death for those who dwell in darkness and the shadow of death and lead Your captive people in freedom. O radiant dawn, splendor of eternal light, son of justice, come, shine on those who dwell in darkness and the shadow of death. O King of all nations, the only joy of every human heart, O Keystone of the mighty ark of humankind, come and save the creature you fashioned from the dust. Come and redeem all creation. And finally, O Emmanuel, King and lawgiver, Desire of nations, Savior of all people, come and set us free 
Lord our God. Hallelujah. The O Antiphons. O come. Lift your voices with me in this final prayer together of Advent, would you? It's on the screen as well, I believe. O God of Isaiah and John the Baptizer, through all such faithful ones, you proclaim the unfolding of future joy and renewed life. Strengthen our hearts to believe your Advent promise that one day we will walk in the holy way of Christ where sighing and sorrowing will be no more and the journey of God's people will be joy. Amen. And that's the candle of Advent we've lit today. The candle of joy. That all would be joy. May the Lord, when He comes, find us watching and waiting. Yeah? And so, Father, these are the cries of our heart. Oh, God, we have cried out to You as Your people. And in so doing, we submit to You our lives. We surrender to You every care and every concern. Every need that we have. That we bear in our hearts as we come to this place together today in gathering on this third Sunday of Advent. We cast all our cares upon You. We lay everything at Your feet. And we thank You that in return You minister to us joy. And the joy of the Lord. Your joy, O God, is our strength. Your joy sustains us. Your joy carries us. And I speak Your joy into each and every one of our hearts. Whatever we may be facing in this moment, whatever we may be anxious with, whatever care may be weighing upon our hearts and in our minds, we take all of them and we lay them before You. And we say, O oh God, O oh Emmanuel, O oh Key of David, O oh Root of Jesse, would You carry all of these things for us? Because we neither have the strength nor are we meant to carry them ourselves. So Holy Spirit, minister the healing that is needed today. Minister the deliverance. Minister the liberty. The freedom. Everything of Your joy. Minister it deep into our hearts and spirits in this place today, in this Advent season. And just as we've lit these candles of Advent, may You burn brightly in our hearts. May our spirits, as Your Word says they are, be the candle of the Lord, burning brightly, even in seasons of darkness and difficulty, even in seasons of adversity and trial and testing. May the light of the Lord burn brightly in us. And may we find our strength in You and You alone. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. God bless you. Thank you, Philip and Matthew and Kit. Appreciate each one of you and your ministry. Join us. I extend invitation to you to join us on Christmas Eve. You uh, should have received um, last week an invitation that looks like this, and I believe there were some available for you to pick up on the table on the way in as you checked in again today. Um, take one of these, take a couple of them if you want, and extend an invitation to someone else. Join us on Christmas Eve from 5 to 6 p.m., just one hour, uh, we're going to have more candles than, than just these Advent candles here. And uh, by candlelight, we'll be lifting up carols. Uh, Frank, Chia, and the uh, 
The team will be leading us in worship, in carols, and uh, the climax and really the, the center of the, the whole hour together will be around the Lord's table, and we will be gathering and sharing communion together. And it will just strictly be an hour service, and it's purposely set early, as it has been for the last few years, so that it doesn't uh, cut in entirely to your Christmas Eve plans, uh, aside from that uh, gathering together uh, with us. Uh, we know that Christmas Eve is a popular time for family plans and so on, even in these cumbersome days that we uh, have been navigating. So make that a part of your plans uh, we extend invitation to you uh, in that regard. Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to Philippians. Philippians. We're looking at Philippians chapter 2, and then if you will, put your finger in 1 John, Philippians chapter 2, and 1 John chapter 2. We had a great Sunday last Sunday together with our global workers, uh, the Steinfields, And it was so wonderful to hear from them and get an update and a report and just see their faces um, beyond just the photo that we have of them at the back. And uh, you received their newsletter, I trust, as well. So good to be together with them. And um, this Sunday, we resume our new series, Agape, and we're into uh, the... Uh, third part or the of of this series already i've been setting the table actually this is part 2 uh the second session we we are sharing together in this series and i've been setting the table together i told a story to you a true story uh two sundays ago the story of richard and charles and uh i i wanted to uh, consider together with you a real life example of, of what this looks like, what we're talking about here in this series. And so if you missed that Sunday, um, I trust that you'll be able to get a hold of it uh, through uh, ordering the message or visiting our website. And we get into the second part of this, setting the table for this series. And I want to do that by sharing my own background with you. In this series, of course, we are considering what it looks like, what it means to live a life of agape love. And we're going to be unpacking in the weeks to come what that means, agape love. What is it to look like in our lives? The love with which Jesus has loved us. How are we then to love our neighbor, love our brother and sister in that same way in which Christ first loved us? And in particular, we're thinking of the fact that our world is a broken world. Our lives are broken lives. And a part of that brokenness entails interacting and relating with certain communities and groups of people that have been particularly fractured by this brokenness. Not making them any worse off than any of the rest of us, but presenting to us unique challenges in that brokenness. And I'm thinking in particular, as you know, if you were here a couple of Sundays ago, of our LGTBQ community and how we relate with them how we love them, how we as the church are to interact 
with them and come alongside them and receive them. And so I told you the story of Richard and Charles and the church of my uh, pastor friend who ministered to that situation. And it's a powerful story. My own background has contributed to this series as well. And I want to share that with you this morning. But first, let's look at our text together. Will you? Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 16. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. Notice, notice the interaction that's happening here. Paul says, work out as God works in. We are to work out our salvation as God works in us. So just as He has worked in us, we are to work that out into the world in which we live as well. Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians, is all about thinking properly about our lives and how we are to live publicly as the people of God. The public life of the people of God. So, Paul is saying, as God has worked in you His salvation, you are to responsively work that out. So there's this rhythm of working in and working out that which God has worked in. He works in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God. Grumbling and disputing, of course, are a sign of ingratitude, aren't they? People who are not grateful people are grumbling people and complaining people and disputing people. So Paul is, again, dealing with the way we think. Don't think that way. Be a people of gratitude. Don't be grumblers and disputers. Of course, Paul no doubt is thinking of the Israelites and their wandering in the wilderness. And remember all the murmuring that went on and the complaining and the grumbling. He no doubt has that in mind as he writes these words to the the new church in Philippi. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. And here it is in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, a broken world, among whom you shine as lights in the world. The Hebrew mindset always compared the people of God, the people of righteousness, as shining lights. And what a fitting theme for us in this Advent and Christmas season. That we are all to be shining as lights in the world. Hold fast to the Word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul's being very transparent there in expressing his own heart in saying to them, please, let me see that my work with you and my investment in you and all the time and effort that I have given to pour into you and disciple you and teach you in the ways of the Lord, that that hasn't been in vain, but that you instead would shine as lights and you would hold fast to the Word. And the idea there in holding fast to the Word of life, notice it's a Word of life, not a word of death. The word of the Lord is a word of life. It is a word of reconciliation. It's not a word of death. It's not a word of judgment Paul directs us to here. But he says, hold fast to the word of life. And the idea he has in mind is that as we hold fast to that, we're also holding it out to the world 
So we're holding tightly to it ourselves, the word of life, but we're holding it out to the world as well. He says, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Now look at our first John passage. No new, how's the, oh boy, boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Some of you are going to wish that I had just stuck with the dead battery instead. So lift your voices with me, say no new. Now, now watch, watch John's words here because he, he can, it gets a little confusing if you follow him. He says, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment. Well, what is it, John, old or new? Well, John's point is, is that it's, there's a newness that I want to show you about this command of the Lord, but it's not new in the sense that you've never heard of this before. John's saying, this is a command that's been around for, for ancient of, of times. Our ancestors lived by this commandment. It was given to them through Moses, this commandment. So it's not new in that sense, but it is new in that now Christ has revealed it to us and opened it up to us in a new way, this commandment. At the same time, verse 8, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in Him, Christ Jesus, and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother or sister is still in darkness. So John's bringing this home now to where the rubber meets the road of our lives. He's saying, I'm not giving you a new commandment, and yet it is new in the sense that Christ has now revealed this commandment to us and what this commandment of love is to look like. So live by this. In these days where the darkness and the world is passing away and the true light is already shining. And then he says, whoever says, if you say that you're in the light, but yet you hate your brother or your sister, you're not really in the light, John is saying. You're still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother or sister abides in the light, and in him or her there is no cause for stumbling, but whoever hates his brother or sister is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he or she is going because the darkness has blinded their eyes. The life and look of love in a broken world. Agape. 
My own background as we approach this subject together of loving a broken world, and in particular, loving a marginalized group of people that have uh, been treated so very often in terrible and despicable ways by the church. My background in my own life was very disposed against me coming to the way I think and feel today regarding this particular subject. And for that matter, any other subject that pertains to sinners along the lines of sin with some of the things that are more damaging or considered more grotesque as they take their impact on the human personality. I was raised, I didn't know it at the time, but I was raised in a climate of self-righteousness. Especially with regards to the homosexual and lesbian. We didn't have any answer for that group of people. We didn't know what to do with them. I wonder sometimes if the reason the church of my childhood was so self-righteous on this subject. And by the way, we would not have thought we were self-righteous. We did not have an awareness that we were self-righteous. We thought it was righteous the way we thought and the way we conducted ourselves. We thought it was righteousness. We had no other understanding. But I wonder if the reason for the self-righteousness and the distancing from anything like this was because we really didn't feel that we had an answer. Unless the answer came totally on our terms. If someone came into a church gathering, we didn't need to show any love. And I'm not just talking about the homosexual or lesbian or LGBTQ community, someone who would be considered a sinner that we would look at in our self-righteousness as a sinner, a heathen of the world. If they would come in to a church gathering like this, we didn't need to show any love. We just needed to preach the hard gospel at them and call people to the Lord. And then they come on our terms rather than lovingly reaching to them as Jesus reached to us. This never occurred to us. I was raised in an environment where we thought nothing of making jokes about the homosexual. We didn't think anything of it. Words like queer, homo, and fag were often used in pejorative jest, in humor, in making fun of, derogatory, disparaging. Similar jokes were made slurring black people and Jewish people never realizing that this was something so inappropriate. An expression that was often used without even any thought given to it, for example, was if you were speaking with someone about the great deal that you just received on a certain purchase that you had made. You would often hear this expression exchanged with another person in use of the conversation, Oh yeah, I got a really good deal. I really jewed them down on that one. And it was said with humor. Not realizing how disparaging that expression really is.
never realizing that this was something so inappropriate to anyone who named the name of the Lord, as we did. But so impacted, though we named the name of the Lord and considered ourselves Christians, followers of Christ, we were so impacted by the culture of our society that we didn't realize how this way of thinking intruded upon the reality of who we were supposed to be in Jesus. Beloved, Jesus would never relate this way. Jesus would never use that kind of humor. But these kind of things, in my background, were just par for the course. They were done without thought. So with these kinds of things being a part of my background, I understand why many of us come with great difficulty to dealing with this kind of subject in a truly Christ-like and biblical way. It isn't easy. This is not an easy subject to deal with. So many things have taken us down other paths. We are very quick, oftentimes, to say how much the homosexual needs to repent. However, I am deeply aware that if the living, life-giving church of Jesus Christ, the people who, as Paul in our text admonishes us to be, who hold fast, hold tightly to the Word of life, and hold that Word of life out to the world. If we, the living, life-giving church of Jesus Christ, if we experienced a massive repentance unto love towards our neighbors, who like us are sinners, including an equal and full availability as Jesus would show to a homosexual, we would find a sweeping holy reversal through the entire community of people over the coming years. In such a way that I believe it would astound us. As it is brought about by a genuine spirit of love and grace. Agape. I believe this with all my heart. As the text says, 1 John 2, verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in the light, there is no cause for stumbling. We do not, in other words, become a stumbling block to those we are trying to reach and hold out the word of life to. Because we are doing so in a genuine spirit of love and grace. Beloved, we are looking here at a call to the church today that requires us to understand how to think and how to live and love in an increasingly crooked, twisted, and decaying culture. How to hold on to and hold out to others the word of life. Philippians 2, verse 16, our text. A broken world filled with broken people. And perversion is at the base of this matter. And I want to be quick to say that this is not meant in any measure to be sneering or scornful, even as I use that word perversion. In no measure is it meant to be sneering or scornful. Pervert itself is another one of those words that has been used that way. 
as I described in my own background. It's another one of those words that has been used that way, sneeringly and scornfully. And I don't want to convey that at all this morning. Perversion, of course, is a biblical term. It is the idea behind the rendering of our text. Crooked and twisted in verse 15 of our Philippians passage. The, 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 the Greek terms that are used there are skolios and diastrepho. Skolios, you, you may, that may ring a bell for you, that term, if you've ever heard of a disease called scoliosis, which is what? It's a twisting of the spine that happens. That's the term that Paul uses here to describe the culture, the world that we live in. It refers to things that oppose or plot against the redemptive promise, purposes, and plans of God. God's high promise and purpose, His redemptive intention for us, for all creation, for all humankind. That which is perverted or twisted or, or crooked is that which opposes that, which works against it. Those promises, purposes, and plans of God. It refers to things that are adverse adverse to things that are intended in God's great created order and adverse to His new creation work in our lives. Things that have become adverse of the way God would have them. The way He would wish them to be. However, there's also another application here with this expression that Paul uses. Because in arguing for the reverse of everything that is adverse to God, follow me now what I'm saying. As the people of God, in arguing for the reverse, the thinking and the attitude has too often made it perverse. If it's been a thinking and attitude like that of my own background, of self-righteousness, then as we take a stand for the reverse of all that is adverse to God's promise, plan, and purpose, because we're doing so from a self-righteous posture, it perverts it. Are you following me? It becomes perverted because our thinking and our attitude is not pure and appropriate and Christ-like. Our thinking and our attitude has become so insistent and so demanding and so degrading and even dehumanizing that in its own way, it becomes recruiting in order to gain others with oneself, in order to gain numbers, a perceived majority that hopefully then seem to verify the rightness of our wrongness. Because look, look, look how many there are that are standing against this the way God's people should stand against it. And so what happens in taking this kind of a posture and approach, there is a failure to brilliantly shine as the bright lights in the world that we are called to be. Because our own self-righteous righteous attitude and thinking perverts it. Clouds the light. We're still living in darkness, as John puts it. As I told you earlier, Hebrew tradition often compared the righteous with lights. We are meant to be lights. Turn to the person beside you and just 
tell them, you are a light of the world. Go ahead, tell them that, will you? You are a light of the world. What does that mean? It means that as God's people, we are to be wise and winsome luminaries and signposts of the kingdom in the world. Not finger-wagging, judgment-toting, condemning, self-righteous, grumpy people. So there's a lot freighted in just this one verse of Philippians chapter 2, verse 15 in our text. There's a lot freighted there. Much more that we don't even really have time to, to dig into this morning. But there's a lot packed into that one verse that Paul gives us. The composition of these things that develop perversion are reflected in that verse. And they're also reflected in John's statement when John says the whole world, in 1 John 2, verse 8, our 1 John text, he says the whole world is passing away. The darkness is passing away. And these are beautiful words that John uses, considering they were written near the end of the first century. And we now live in in, in here, here we are, 20 centuries later, and one might well ask, upon hearing those words and reading those words, well, how is the darkness passing away there while the darkness here now seems to have intensified? How does that work? What am I to make of these words of John? But beloved, John's not talking about the quantity of darkness. Not the quantity of darkness. He's talking about the fact that wherever darkness exists, especially in the human heart, there is always an erosion that happens. A decay that is going on in the person and they are aware of this. And if they will truly be honest with themselves, they will acknowledge that this darkness is taking away from their lives, reducing them, that it is a dead-end street. Incidentally, Advent, this season that we are marveling in, Advent is designed to show us that the meaning of Christmas is diminished to the vanishing point if we are not willing to take a fearless inventory of the darkness. So Advent prepares us to really fully and more truly with integrity celebrate Christmas. The darkness is passing away, John says. Would you say that with me? The darkness is passing away. Say it again. The darkness is passing away. And now, John says, the true light shines. Then he says these words. He says, if I am living in that light, then I can't say that this is where I am living if I don't love my brother. If I'm living in the light that is shining, the light of Christ now shining, I can't really say I'm living in that light if I don't love my brother or my sister. Well, in reading this, I realized another thing about my background that I was oriented to. And perhaps you can relate with this as well. It was a theological orientation that I did not know at the time. I wasn't aware of it. But I've come to realize this now as the Spirit of God has been working in my own heart around this whole subject matter. It was a theological orientation in my background. 
It was not social. It was not cultural. It was theological. And this was on the grounds of understanding the Scriptures. It was the idea, it was the notion that I don't need to call people who are not in Christ my brothers or sisters. Well, I don't need to call them that. They're not in Christ, so they're not my brothers and sisters. We're talking, when I say brother and sister, we're talking about the people who are in Christ and part of the church. And this was the theological idea that we had. We don't need to call them brothers and sisters because they're not in Christ. After all, I've been born again. I'm in the family of God. They're not. Therefore, they are not my brothers and sisters in Christ. And of course, technically, technically, that is true. For the Bible uses the terms. For example, in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul writes that we have been brought into the family of God through new birth in Jesus Christ and that we have been born into one family. So the Bible does use those terms in that way. However, the Bible also refers to God Listen to this, please. As the Father of all spirits. In other words, every human being has been created in His image. Every human being. And He has sired unto life just as through Christ we are sired unto new creation life by the regeneration experience of salvation, He has sired all humankind unto life. All humankind has been made in His image. The weight of His glory is upon all humankind. Created in His image. Now, that image, as we know, has been disfigured and marred and broken and buried because of sin. But it does not diminish the fact that all humankind have been made in His image. So it stands to reason then that it is dishonesty with the revelation of Scripture that I would ever be less than acknowledging that every person on the planet, please hear my words this morning, every person on the planet I am brother to. That when Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor? He might well equally have been asked, who shall I say is my brother or my sister? You see, beloved, we, we've got to recognize that the Scripture, if we're honest with it, the Scripture places upon us equal demands here. The Bible does not see us as isolated individuals. Neither I nor my neighbor is yet the person God intends us to become. Neither I nor my neighbor is yet the person God intends us to become. The Bible teaches that no one of us lives or dies unto ourselves. That all of humankind has a mutual interconnectedness and related community. Somehow, the life of my brother and sister and my life are bound up in each other. Not only in terms of the special kinship of the mystery of the body of Christ, because of the joy of salvation, but also 
in the body of humankind in general as a whole I am a brother to all I'm a brother to the person today that perhaps this very night will sit in a bar downtown on Granville or Hastings or Georgia and is there filled with an anger and hatred and malice that would suppose that any kind of gathering like this here this morning was intended to do anything possible to rid the earth of their kind. But he is my brother. She is my sister. And until that conviction, beloved, until that conviction settles and is established in me, I will not love as a brother. I will not truly love my neighbor as myself. I will not truly love as I have been loved. And therefore, John says, I'm not really walking in the light. Are you tracking with this? All of this calls to us from these texts that we have opened before us today. These texts at hand as we launch into this series. All of this tells us that if I don't learn to love, I am not shining as a light and living in the light any more than the one who is living in the darkness that is passing away. John says, you're no different than they are. I may have been born into the light. I may have come into the light of Christ Jesus. However, living it and living it out in the warmth and glow of that light is another matter entirely. Hello? That's what John is saying to us. How can I live and love in a crooked, twisted, decaying culture? What does the life of love look like in our broken world? How can I hold out the word of life to my brothers and sisters in the world rather than issuing an attitude of judgment? I believe that there are at least four keys to help us. And we'll begin unpacking those next time. Would you stand together with me as Philip and Kit and Matthew prepare to come? I want to encourage us just in these concluding moments to remove every distraction that right in this moment, whatever it is you're thinking about, Oh, what time is it? Oh, I got to get on to do this. I got to get going. Oh, what's going on? I wonder, wonder what so and so is up to today. Whatever, whatever, whatever is concerning and weighing in for your attention right now, would you just for a moment set that aside and allow the Holy Spirit to complete the good purpose of the Father in your heart? this morning in bringing us together on this third Sunday of Advent for such a time as this, a season where we are lighting candles, not only here but in our homes perhaps, a season where we are decorating with lights and dressing trees with lights and dressing our homes with lights all signs of the light that we ourselves are to be.
And John says you can't just say that you're in the light and not live that way. If you're in the light, then you've got to live that light out. And you've got to let that light shine. And you've got to do it in a way that is life-giving. Hold tightly to the Word of life and let your light shine so that then the Word of life is being held out to the world, to our brothers and sisters, in a life-giving way. In the midst of a broken world, a crooked culture, 